John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25 is our text for today. And we're looking at this passage that we started last week where Jesus cleanses the temple in order to establish or rather restore true worship. Uh, We focused last week on the zeal that Jesus had for the Father's house as a place of worship and prayer. And today we'll see how this act by Jesus demonstrates who He is. That He is the Christ, the Son of God. And we'll consider the different ways that people responded to Jesus and how that relates to you and to me. Follow along as I read John chapter 2, verses 22, or rather, (laughs) uh, verses 13 to 22 to 25. I'm still getting used to not wearing glasses. It's not as perfect as I thought, I guess. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, with this text open before us, we submit our hearts and our minds to what the Spirit would teach us today. Open our minds, illumine our hearts. Show us Christ. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. For those among us that need it, young and old, give sight to blind eyes, hearing to deaf ears, life to dead souls. We believe that only you, Holy Spirit, can save and sanctify And we pray that you would do that for the sake of the glory of Christ. Amen. Do you believe in Jesus? Many of you would say yes. Some of you perhaps would say no. It's more complicated of a question than it seems. What does it mean to believe? What is involved with believing and how do I know if I meet that criteria? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Who is he that I should believe in him? What what do I need to believe about him? Those are questions raised by this text. 
What does it mean to believe in Jesus? As important as that question is, there is a far more significant question raised by this passage. And that is, does Jesus believe in you? I don't mean does he believe in you like a parent would say to their child, I believe in you, you can do it. Not that. I mean, does Jesus believe in your belief? When Jesus hears you say, I believe in Jesus, does Jesus respond by saying, I believe you? That's the most significant question because when we stand before the Lord, the factor that determines our eternal destiny is not what we say about Jesus, but what Jesus says about us whether or not he accepts our belief as legitimate. And so in this passage, Jesus gives us ample reasons to believe in him. And, and we're going to see three responses that will then help us to consider our own response to Jesus. We begin by considering how Jesus put on display his power and authority as he cleaned out the temple. We, we looked last time at this with a particular focus on the zeal that Jesus displayed. Uh, there must have been many true worshipers throughout Israel who hated that this market was moved inside the temple. Uh, they hated the noise. They hated the religious leaders that let it happen. They, they may have even been as zealous as Jesus to, to do what he did. So why didn't they? Why did nobody say anything about this market until Jesus came on this particular Passover? The simple answer is because no one had the authority that Jesus had to regulate temple worship, and they didn't have the power and ability to make it happen. So today I want us to consider what made Jesus uniquely qualified to clear out the market, because it is that qualification and not the clearing out of the temple itself that the Jewish leaders responded to. Look again at verses 13 to 17 just as we remind ourselves what took place. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the first Passover in the, that fell within the ministry of Jesus' earthly uh, time, his last few years. We're not sure how much time had passed since the wedding at Cana from uh, the earlier part of chapter 2. It's likely been some matter of months because Jesus preached and ministered in various cities throughout Galilee before making his way to Judea and Jerusalem for the Passover. Though it's true that the Gospel of John is the least concerned with giving us a chronology of the ministry of Jesus, it's actually the only one that tells us each of the Passovers that Jesus celebrated. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only mention the last Passover at which Jesus was crucified, but this first one John records here, and then in John 6, we're told of another Passover when Jesus was in Jerusalem, and then there's the final Passover in John 11. But that this is the first Passover Jesus celebrated after launching his public ministry is significant to the overall purpose of the uh, Apostle John in demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This market 
that Jesus walked into was nothing new. Though we don't know exactly when the transition took place, it started this market outside the east gate of the temple on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. But at some point, it was moved inside the temple into the court of the Gentiles, which was the largest, most outer court part of the temple through which everyone had to pass. And so the place of worship and prayer and teaching turned into a raucous swarm of people and animals. When Jesus was a boy and a young man, he no doubt had his zeal stirred up as much as he did on this particular day. But for some 30 Passovers of his life, he didn't do anything about it. Why? Because his time had not yet come. But this Passover was different. Some weeks or months earlier, the prophet John had publicly announced that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus then performed a variety of signs and miracles throughout Galilee. He began preaching the gospel of the coming kingdom. So his ministry was in full gear, and this was his first Passover as the publicly proclaimed Messiah. Jews and believing Gentiles would fill the city of Jerusalem, and the time had come for Jesus to exercise his divine authority to enforce regulations of temple worship. So he drove out the sellers of the animals, the animals themselves, the money changers, and all who were there in the temple for that purpose. When we read that he made a whip and he overturned tables, we, may, we might imagine a, a man who's menacing and, and unrestrained and out of control. But Jesus was not unrestrained or out of control. As the Son of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, for Jesus to lose control would be to cause all of the material universe to cease to exist. He was not out of control. He was, he was not flailing around indiscriminately, whipping anything in his path. His zeal was purposeful and targeted to disrupt the market and remove it from his father's house. To be zealous is to be passionate, not irrational. And so Jesus was anything but irrational. He was in full control of his emotions and his thinking and his actions. Again, Jesus was not just a, a zealous Jew who took action when he saw the Father's house being dishonored. He is, he was, and is the Messiah who had authority over the temple and its practices. Well, why do we say that as the Messiah, he had such authority? It's because the Messiah is God's prophet, God's priest, and God's king. And Jesus exercised facets of each of those roles in this very passage. Let me show that to you, what the scripture says about those roles and how Jesus exercised them. The Old Testament makes it clear that uh, the old, uh, the, rather, the Old Testament makes it clear that the Messiah is not just a royal figure as God's king. That's obvious enough. Psalm 2 makes that very clear. But he is also a priest. Uh, keep your finger here and turn over with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a critical passage of, of the Messiah. It's one that Jesus uses throughout his ministry to uh, confuse and confront the Pharisees over their unbelief. Here in Psalm 110, both of these roles of the, the king and the priest are brought together. Listen to what, David, to what David says about his future son. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. 
rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be, of your youth rather, will be yours. So that's all the royal aspect of the Messiah. And then he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, the Messiah is king and priest. The prophet Zechariah also unites the priestly and kingly roles of the Messiah in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, where he writes, It is he, the Messiah, who shall build the temple of the Lord and bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. This is to say that both the office of the priest and the office of king will be brought together in one man, the Messiah. Well, not only will the Messiah be king and not only will he be a priest, he will also be a prophet. As Moses neared the end of his life, he said to the Jews there on, on the cusp of the promised land, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Ever since Moses, there was never anyone who filled that description, who was a prophet like Moses. And so it became understood that the Messiah would be that prophet. So again, the Messiah would be prophet, priest, and king. And we see each of those roles exercised by Jesus in his words and works in clearing out the temple. As God's priest, he enforced the regulations of true worship by removing those who were undermining worship in the temple. As God's king, he exercised authority over God's temple by speaking of tearing down and building the temple. If you think about it, it's only kings who built the temple. First King Solomon, and then Ezra, who was more governor, but functionally the, the king, and then now King Herod in the time of Christ. And then as God's prophet, he gave a strong rebuke. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And he made a prophecy. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the zeal that Jesus demonstrated here is not just the zeal of a faithful Jew, but the zeal of the Messiah of God, who is prophet, priest, and king. Now this was not lost on the Jewish leaders. Look at their response in verse 18. So the Jews, and that's a reference to the Jewish leaders, said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice that they didn't say, you're not allowed to do that. They did not try to justify the presence of this market and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. And we're not told how much they knew about Jesus in terms of his claims or his signs at this point, but it seems that they knew enough to consider the possibility that maybe he actually has the right and the authority to do this. But they wanted more evidence, so they asked for a sign. Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem unreasonable to us. Jesus is just at the beginning of his ministry, and he's not as well known as he will become even in the next few days, as, he, as we'll see in verses uh, 22 to 25. And perhaps the leaders of the temple had not heard as much as they will eventually hear, and they hadn't observed his miracles for themselves, and so it would be reasonable for them to ask for a sign. But however legitimate a question like that would be, they quickly show their true colors. And this is where we see the first 
response. Because in asking for a sign, we see that the Jewish leaders responded to Jesus in unbelief. In unbelief. And we know that because their question betrays their unbelief by how they responded to Jesus' answer. Look at verses 19 to 21. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus answers their request for a sign in a way that forces their hand to display whether their question was genuine or not. He offers them a sign that no matter how you interpret it would prove that he is the Messiah. When he says there, destroy this temple, the word temple is naos, which is a different word than the word temple uh, over in verse 14, hieron. Uh, These two words for temple are essentially interchangeable throughout the New Testament, but it seems to be that the word there in verse 19 is more uh, used for that inner temple, the the holy place, that place that was blocked from the people by that curtain which was torn in two at the death of Christ. The other term seems to be more a reference to the, the whole complex of the temple. And so it's possible that they interpreted Jesus, to me, not not the whole complex would be torn down and rebuilt in three days, but but that smaller temple at the center of it all. But at the same time, that's not even clear because they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and, and that certainly includes far more than that sanctuary in the middle. Either way, whether Jesus in their minds was referring to the whole complex or just the, the inner temple, it would be impossible then, as it would be today, to rebuild it in three days. It would take, get this, divine power to build the temple in three days. But you know, if he had the power to build in three days, he could build it in one day or in the blink of an eye. Well, the audacity of Jesus' claim left an impression on them some two years later. As Jesus stood for trial before the Sanhedrin, several witnesses came forward to testify to what Jesus said. And one man testified, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And then another testimony came, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Of course, you can see Jesus' words right there. They totally misrepresented what he said. He didn't say he would destroy the temple, but they were right to say that he would rebuild it. Whether they misremembered Jesus' words or intentionally twisted them, they did not forget his claim to be able to raise it up on the third day. Well, at that time, Jesus didn't respond to their false accusations. He didn't try and correct, oh, no, you got that wrong. That's not what I said. That's not what I meant. And so in frustration over the silence of Jesus, the high priest responded, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The high priest understood that that claim that Jesus made, misunderstood or not, were only things the Messiah could say. Now, as audacious as it would seem, 
to claim that you can rebuild the temple in three days, what Jesus actually meant was far more outrageous. Rebuilding the temple in three days is to claim for oneself abilities, orders of magnitude greater than natural human strength and skill and speed. But remember what verse 21 says? He was speaking about the temple of his body. What Jesus really meant is that the sign that he would give validating his authority over the temple is that he would raise the temple of his body from the dead. The ability to do that is is not orders of magnitude above human ability. It's an altogether different kind of power. To raise the dead, one would have to be God. Now, why did Jesus refer to his body as a temple? Because it is a temple. In Christ, Colossians 2.9 says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then in Revelation 21, as the Apostle John is describing the new Jerusalem that had come down to the new earth, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In the eternal state, there will be no intermediary between God and his people. We will be with him and he will be with us. So when you stand before Jesus, you are standing before the temple of God. Well, the Jewish leaders, of course, rejected his claim thinking that he meant the physical temple and they would not accept that possibility that he could do such a thing. Can you imagine if how they would have responded if they actually understood what he meant? Well, you don't have to imagine. The scripture tells us Jesus makes the same claim in John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, where it says, where Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. That time, there's no doubt that Jesus is claiming to be able to raise himself from the dead. And the response of most of the people at that time, John tells us, is to say, they they were saying that Jesus is insane or he has a demon. And no doubt, that's exactly how the Jewish leaders would have responded this time. So the first response to Jesus cleansing the temple and his promised sign is pure unbelief. The second sign that we see here is genuine faith. Genuine faith. Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What we have here is the first of a number of times when the disciples are just as confused as everybody else. But instead of rejecting Jesus, they just take him at his word. By telling us here that it wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead that they understood and believed the statement that Jesus made, John implies that in the moment, they just accepted what Jesus said without truly understanding it. That is childlike faith. Childlike faith is not blind faith. 
It's not an irrational faith that believes something contrary to the evidence. Childlike faith is simply trusting in what a trustworthy person says, even if you don't understand it. Again, this was still early on in Jesus' ministry, so the disciples themselves were still getting to know Jesus. But consider what they did have as a basis for trusting in Jesus. First, they had the testimony of the prophet John, who declared Jesus to be the Messiah. Then they had their own personal interaction with Jesus, where he displayed insight and knowledge that was only possible of the Son of God. Then they observed at the wedding in Cana that Jesus could actually change the fabric of nature by turning water into wine. And and then after that, they began to hear Jesus preach about the kingdom, and they saw the signs that he was performing among the people. And so they may not have understood what Jesus said or what he meant when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise, raise it up. But whatever he meant, if he could do the signs and the miracles that they had already seen him do, surely this was no more difficult for him. So again, their faith was not a blind faith. It was a faith based on what they already knew about Jesus. Now, their childlike faith throughout the ministry of Jesus would be tested a number of times. And each time it was tested, it would, it would prove genuine. Turn over just to John chapter 6 near the end of the chapter to, to see another moment where they had an opportunity to believe in the midst of confusion. In John chapter 6, uh, Jesus fed thousands at the beginning of the chapter. They followed him the next day, wanting their next meal. And he had this extended interaction with them, with uh, a massive crowd of Jews who did not believe. And so Jesus makes an intentionally confusing statement to turn those away who didn't truly believe in him. Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Well, you spoke metaphorically, but of course the people couldn't get the literal picture out of their mind. And instead of asking what Jesus meant, truly seeking understanding, they just turned away from him. This man is a cannibalist. But then look down at verse 67. The, the crowd of thousands had been thinned down just to his own disciples. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And in response, Peter says what are some of my favorite words in the New Testament. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I have no doubt in my mind that Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, were just as confused as everybody else. He couldn't possibly understand what Jesus meant by eat my flesh and drink my blood. But he did know this. Jesus is not a liar. And Jesus is not a lunatic. Jesus had proven over and over and over that he is Lord. And so Peter's thinking, I may not understand what you're talking about right now, but you have the words of eternal life and I will follow you. 
Well, coming back to John 2, verse 22 tells us that seeing Jesus risen from the dead turned their childlike faith into mature faith. Notice that it says that they not only believed the word that Jesus had spoken, but also the scripture. It's not clear what scripture John the Apostle is referring to here, but it seems as though in their minds, no doubt illumined by the Holy Spirit, they connected the words of Jesus with the Old Testament passages that speak of the resurrection. And so their faith matured and they came to understand the scripture. Well, after Jesus displayed his authority and power, the Jewish leaders responded with unbelief and the disciples responded with childlike faith. Now in verse 23 to 25, we see how the rest of the people responded to the signs of Jesus and his authority and power. And the way they responded was with shallow faith, shallow faith. Look at the passage. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is a summary statement of how the people responded to Jesus and his signs over the course of the the multiple days of the Passover. We're not told here what specific signs Jesus performed, but Matthew describes the overall character of Jesus' ministry wherever he went. Matthew 4, 23-25 says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick and all the afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem to Judea, and from the, beyond the Jordan. So those are the signs that Jesus performed everywhere healing every disease and every affliction, casting out demons, stopping seizures, healing paralytics. So it's almost certain that those are the very signs that he performed there in Jerusalem during Passover. As we've said, these displays of divine power on the part of Jesus, John called them signs because their purpose was to signal to people who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. Sometime later, when John the Baptist was in prison, he had a moment of confusion about who Jesus was. He was wondering if he really was the Christ. Jesus wasn't fulfilling his own personal expectations. And so he sent a messenger to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And listen to what Jesus' reply is. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus performed these signs in Jerusalem, validating his claim to be the Messiah. And then verse 23 tells us, as a result of these signs, many were believing in his name. The word believing there, or believed, is pastuo. It's the same word used in verse 22 of the disciples believing after Jesus' resurrection. How exciting is that? Jesus' power is on display for all to see, and people were believing in his name. That's exactly what you want to see happen. You can imagine the joy and the excitement that filled Jerusalem as these people have come from all over the world, and they're spreading the news. The Messiah is here, and he's healing, and he's teaching. Look, you can go to him, and you can see him, and you can hear him for yourself. 
How can we call their faith shallow? Well, if all we had was verse 23, and the Apostle John moved us on to talking about Nicodemus in chapter 3, we would have to assume that their faith was the same childlike faith of the disciples, but John doesn't end at verse 23. He gives us insight into the kind of faith these people had. He says there in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is an indirect way of saying that Jesus knew the kind of faith that the people had did not take root in their heart. It was shallow faith. Shallow of the kind that Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 4 when he talks about the different ways that people respond to the seed of the gospel. Remember there, Jesus gives this parable. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky soil, where it did not have much soil, and it immediately sprang up since it had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed, he said, uh, fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, yielded no grain. And then other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Jesus then went on to explain to the disciples that that first soil are those who do not believe because the evil one comes to take the word of God away from them. The soil represents those who respond immediately, but because their faith is shallow, as soon as difficulty comes, they fall away. And the third soil represents those who seem to take root in their faith, but then the trials and the temptations of life come and chokes out their faith. And then that fourth soil represents those who believe and persevere and bear fruit. If you take that grid and apply it to our passage, the Jewish leaders were the first soil. They had the word of God standing right in front of them. He demonstrated his power and authority, but they just rejected him out of hand. The disciples are the fourth seed in that they heard and they believed and they persevered and they bore fruit. Here in verses 23 to 25, we see that the people were the third seed. They responded immediately with joy and belief, but Jesus knew it wasn't going to last, and and indeed it didn't last. Whenever Jesus said something they didn't understand, they turned away from him. Whenever the Jewish leaders threatened to cast believers in Jesus out of the synagogue, people denied him. When Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations, they rejected him. It's always easy to jump onto the bandwagon when you see Jesus perform miracles and he benefits your own life in that way, but the slightest challenge proved their faith to be shallow. So knowing the true condition of their heart, verse 24 says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The word entrust there translates pistuo, which is the same word for belief in verse 22 and in 23. So you could say, That verse 22, the disciples believed in Jesus. Verse 23, the crowds believed in Jesus. And verse 24, Jesus did not believe in the crowds when he saw their faith. 
What does it mean that Jesus didn't believe in them or that he didn't entrust himself to them? Well, belief is a disposition of the heart that then leads to action. So for Jesus to not believe in them or to not entrust himself to them means that in his heart, he did not consider their response to be genuine. He didn't consider them as genuine, true followers. As he was receiving praise and adoration and accolades, he he didn't accept it as true worship. He didn't respond to their expressions of belief as if it was genuine. You don't have to turn back there, but in the early part of John chapter 6, after Jesus fed thousands of people miraculously, it tells us when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving, though, that Jesus, that they were about to come and make him Uh, take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people expected the Messiah to be a political figure, so they saw Jesus perform this sign, and they were ready to put him up on their shoulders and make him king over Israel. They thought they were believing in Jesus. But their faith was misplaced. And Jesus prevented them from carrying out their desire. He did not entrust himself to them. He he didn't put himself in their hand. Literally and figuratively, he did not get carried away by the crowds. The people loved Jesus. They, They would follow Jesus. He drew such large crowds that he couldn't go into towns anymore because he'd get close. And so many throngs would come out that they couldn't fit through the streets. So Jesus was popular. But it was shallow. It was all a facade. Not Jesus himself, of course, but the people's interest in him. They were were glad to celebrate and to worship Jesus as long as it benefited them and met their expectations. But but as soon as he failed to meet their expectations, they went home thinking, ah, just another failed Messiah. For his part, Jesus never tried to gather a crowd. He He wasn't interested in being famous, as we saw in John chapter 6. He often said things intentionally to push people away. If Jesus entrusted himself, if he believed in their faith, if he counted them as true followers, he would have given them more revelation to increase their understanding and strengthen their faith. But he did exactly the opposite. Remember that the parables that Jesus gave, which are so helpful to us, were for the purpose of of hiding and covering the truth from the people. When the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 13, why do you speak to the people in parables? This was his response. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people... This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So when John 2.25 tells us that Jesus knew what was in man, that's what was in man. That people were stubborn, hard-hearted, unable to hear and understand. Yes, they responded happily to the benevolent Messiah whose miracles drastically improved their lives, but they could not accept what he truly came to accomplish. 
like the Israelites of old who hated the prophets because they spoke the truth to them. These people could not handle what Jesus had to say. Jesus knew that, so he did not entrust himself to them by treating them as if they could. These are the three responses that we see to Jesus. Unbelief, genuine faith, and shallow faith. My friends, you must believe in Jesus. But you can claim to believe in Jesus, and Jesus may not believe in you. I remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I I didn't believe in you. I didn't trust you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God forbid that any of us would comfort our own hearts saying, I have believed. And then we would tell ourselves of all of the evidence of our belief of the ways that we have served Christ only to find out on the last day that Jesus never believed in us. May it never be that you stand before the Lord one day and say, well, Jesus, I served in the nursery in your name. I was in the welcome ministry in your name. I did evangelism in your name. I I taught kids in your name. I took meals to those in need in your name, and then hear from Jesus, I never knew you. The Apostle John writes in 2 Corinthians 11, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So how do you examine yourself? How do you discern if your faith is genuine or shallow? I want to offer you three tests to see if your faith is the kind of faith that Jesus believes in. Three tests. First, is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the object of your faith? Is Jesus the object of your faith? Notice how those in Matthew 7 focus on what they did. We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did mighty miracles. The object of their faith was in themselves and their work. Sure, their their work was done in the name of Jesus, but they depended on themselves and not on the finished work of Christ. True faith, both childlike faith and mature faith, has the same object, the the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. You must believe in the Jesus who is, not the Jesus who you prefer him to be, not the Jesus as you think he is, but the Jesus who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. The people in Jerusalem had, a, had an idea of Jesus, but their thinking was distorted. Their faith looked good at first, but when Jesus didn't turn out to be the man that they, they thought he would be, they walked away. So you must believe in Jesus for who he is, not who you want him to be. You have to believe that he is the son of God, that he came into the world as truly God and truly man. That he lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will return one day to rule on this earth. 
You must believe in Jesus, who He is and what He did. And not just agree that that's who He is and yes, I understand that's what He did, but that that is that, that His very being and His very work is alone the basis by which I can be saved. So that when you stand before the Lord, you cannot point to yourself, I believed, and I did this, and I did that. But rather, you point to Christ. It's what He did on my behalf. So the first test is whether Jesus, as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, is the object of your faith and not yourself. Is He your Savior? The second test is to see, see whether your faith is proven, uh, rather, whether your faith is genuine, is, is it proven by a heart submitted to Him? Is your faith proven by a heart submitted to Him? This is the question, is He your Lord? You're not saved by your obedience. We've already established it's finished, the finished work of Christ. But submission to Christ authenticates one who is saved by Christ. Again, Jesus said there in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And by that, Jesus doesn't mean that you are saved by your works, but that those who do the Father's will show that they are in right relationship with Him. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus asked this penetrating question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? What's the point of calling Jesus Lord if you have no intention to to submit to Him? Consider what Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. So you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's believing in who Jesus is as He is revealed in Scripture. So you have to believe that He is Lord. And then you know you actually believe that He is Lord when you submit to Him as Lord. Now obviously, as long as we are in this sinker's body and in the sinker's world, our submission will be imperfect. As Paul said in Romans 7, we don't do the things we want to do and and we don't want to do the things that we do. There is a battle raging in every believer between the spirit and the flesh. But the true believer will engage in that battle. Misunderstanding this leads many to struggle with assurance because they know they still sin. So this leads to the third test. In examining yourself, you can ask, is Jesus my Savior? Am I trusting in Him and not myself? You can ask, is Jesus my Lord? Am I submitting to Him? And third, am I believing and submitting in Him today? Am I believing and submitting to Him today? The kind of faith Jesus believes in has Him as its object, submits to Him as validation, and perseveres in following Him. Again, the fact that you and I sin is not an indication that we are not saved. The question is, what do we do in response to our sin? Are, are we confessing it? Are we repenting of it? Are, are we growing in our hatred of it? Are we, by the Spirit's power, increasingly able to overcome it? 
If our response to sin in our lives is to disregard it, to, to blame shift, to justify it, or just be apathetic about it, persisting in that may reveal false faith. But if our response is to humble ourselves and confess our sin and then exert ourselves to repent and flee from that sin, even if you stumble along the way, that is a sign of genuine submissive faith. And then, of course, beyond battling sin, there's genuine faith that perseveres through trials. When difficult times come, when trials hit and the Bible challenges your thinking about life and the world, The kind of faith Jesus believes in doesn't turn away when God does things that confuse us. True faith responds by saying, I I have no idea what God is doing in my life. I don't understand why God did that in the Bible or what God means by what He said. But I will trust Him as I continue to grow in my understanding. Genuine faith is centered around the person and work of Christ as the only basis for justification. It is validated by a life of submission to the Lordship of Christ, and it perseveres through battles with sin, temptation, and trials. That is the kind of faith that the disciples had. They faltered, they failed, they were confused, but they persevered. The crowds believed at first, but they didn't last. So what kind of faith do you have? Does Jesus believe in you? Or do you believe in yourself? Be sure that your faith is fully fixed on Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Well, today this passage has led us to focus more on the human side of the equation of salvation. You must believe. Next week, we'll hear from Jesus what must happen from God's side. What, uh, what does God have to do so that you can believe? We'll look forward to that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this helpful passage. It's sad in so many ways to see that the Son of God could so powerfully put himself on display indisputably. No question of who he is. And yet because of the sinfulness of man, Some responded with unbelief. Others responded with false faith. Lord, we know that in a room this size, there would be those in both of those categories. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would remove the blinders, that you would grant true, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that for all of us, as we walk through the challenges of this life, that our faith would persevere, and that the Spirit would keep us strong and secure in Christ, that even through those moments of confusion and perplexity, when we just can't see how you are at work, Lord, cause us to stand firm and not forget in the dark what we saw in the light. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.